Amen. Do you believe that? If he says it, we believe it. If he says it, it's worthy. It's the truth. And we believe it. Amen. Well, why don't you, one more time, just tell somebody you're glad they're here, and then we're going to get right into the message today. Amen. All right. I have so many notes for today. <laughs> Let's pray. <laughs> this goes well. All right. <laughs> oh, yes, going to be good. We have been talking about the power of the blood. The power of the blood. And it's amazing, the power of the blood. Sometimes we just don't recognize and realize the power of the blood. But you know what? Before we even start, let's pray and open our hearts to receive the message today on the power of the blood. Father, we just thank you so much that today, even as we open your word, Lord, we open your word to hear and to know how you, by the blood, have cleansed our conscience. Father, we thank you for the power of the blood. We thank you, Lord, that it's never lost its power. It doesn't matter how many generations, how long, how much time. I thank you, Lord, that there is such power in the blood. And we pray today that the Holy Spirit will enlighten us, that he'll grow us, that he'll cause us to understand new truth today as to how that blood applies to us, how it has washed and cleansed our conscience, Father, so that we can stand before you fully knowing that we belong there. We belong in your presence. We belong with the anointing on us. We belong in your kingdom as one who operates under the anointing and in the power of the blood. Oh, we thank you for it, Lord. We thank you. We open our hearts to receive today what you have for us. Amen. The power of the blood. Well, like I said, I'm going to talk about how we can have a clean conscience today. So we've been talking about the power of the blood. Pastor Mark so uh, brought a wonderful message last week, and he talked to us about redemption, and to redeem is to purchase or to buy back. And we have been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus. We have been redeemed. In fact, Ephesians 1, 7 through 9, I'm going to read it out of the Amplified. I have a lot of my scriptures written down today um, because I'm going to switch back and forth between some translations. But this is what it says, Ephesians 1, 7, it says, in him we have redemption. So that's not something we're waiting for. We have redemption. It's a present fact. We have redemption. And what is that? Well, the Amplified says deliverance and salvation through his blood. The remission or forgiveness of our offenses, our shortcomings, our trespasses. So not only is it the sin that had separated us from him, but the blood goes further. It cleanses our shortcomings and our trespasses. And it says, in accordance with the riches and the generosity of his gracious favor, which he lavished upon us in every kind of wisdom and understanding, 
practical insight and prudence, making known to us the mystery, the secret of his will, of his plan and his purpose. And it is this, in accordance with his good pleasure, his merciful intention, which he had previously purposed and set forth in him. In Christ, because of his blood, we have redemption. And you know, I love this. It says, it talks about his plan and his purpose in accordance with his good pleasure. You know, God had a plan from the very beginning, and that plan was to make man and to be in partnership with man, to be in partnership with him and to work with him and to have family. And that was God's plan. And so Pastor Mark was mentioning something last week, which caused me to do a little more study this week. And he talked about how, you know, the fall of man and sin didn't just affect us. It affected God, too. It affected him. You know, it affected his plan. So, you know, like if I told my kids, like, we're going to go to Disneyland, and then they started acting up, and I said, "Um, we're not going to Disneyland if you keep acting that way. Well, then... Not only do they not get to go to Disneyland, I don't get to go either, (laughs) you know, which is terrible. (laughs) And so I was reading in Andrew Murray's book, The Blood of Christ, and he expounds on this thought of how sin affected God, how the separation affected God. And this is what it says. It says sin had a twofold effect. It has an effect on God as well as man, and we emphasize generally its effect on man. But the effect it has exercised on God is more terrible and serious. It is because of its effect on God that sin has power over us. God, as Lord of all, could not overlook sin. It is his inalterable, unalterable law that sin would bring forth sorrow and death. And when man fell into sin, he by that law of God was brought under the power of sin. God had to watch as man was separated and as that process of death began in his life. The loving creator who made us for partnership was now separated by his own law and one would say could do nothing except for He already had a plan in place. It goes on and it says, What then was the effect of sin upon God? In his divine nature, he ever remains unchanged and unchangeable. But in his relationship and bearing towards man, an entire change has taken place. While it was God's desire to continue in love and in friendship with man, sin has compelled him to become an opponent. Although the love of God towards man remains unchanged, sin made it impossible for him to admit man into fellowship with himself. It has compelled him to pour out upon man his wrath and punishment instead of love. The change which sin has caused in God's relationship to man is awful. The holy love was unwilling to let man go. Notwithstanding all his sin, it could not give him up. He must be redeemed. The holy wrath could not surrender its demands. The law had been despised. God had been dishonored. God's right must be upheld. There could no, be no thought of releasing a sinner as long as the law was not satisfied. 
the terrible effect of sin in heaven on God must be counteracted. The guilt of sin must be removed. Otherwise, the sinner could not be delivered. And the only solution possible was reconciliation. You know, I thought about that this week. I was thinking, man, can you imagine being in that position? But he had it covered from the very beginning. You know, the Bible tells us that Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. How could he be the lamb slain before the foundation of the world? Because the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit had a council with each other. And they said, we're going to create man in love for partnership. We want to do things with him. We have plans. We have ideas. We have purposes. And they created him. But before they even created him, they said, if there be a day that something should happen, we've got to have a plan in place so that he will not forever be lost. And don't you love that they did that? So the plan of reconciliation, and we understand that, but I was thinking about this. It was to restore fellowship and partnership. You know, God had to be an enforcer, but the Bible tells us he became the just, the enforcer, but also the justifier. And he made that decision way before man ever fell. Way before. The plan was so perfect and so in love and so complete that he said, Jesus said, my intention is to go for them. And God took his intention and he said, we will, we will take that because you're perfect. You're never going to lie. And this is the precedent that we will implement this plan. You know, I was thinking about this. How could God say to Abraham, the intention to offer your son is good enough for me and I'll count it unto you for righteousness. How could he say that? Because there was a precedent of the Son of God who already said that. And God said, upon this precedent, we will continue this plan and we will cause it to come to pass through this people so that we can bring a person, Jesus, and we can have redemption. Oh, man. Romans 3.21, out of the New King James Version, says this. It says, But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all, and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation or a payment by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So you know, our part is to have faith. His part was to be the just and the justifier. 
We simply receive his sacrifice. We have faith. And if we have faith in Jesus, we have stepped into that plan of redemption. We have stepped into that place of being redeemed. We have stepped into the place of being bought back by what? By the propitiation of his blood. The payment, the payment that appeased the sacrifice needed so that we could regain that place. I love that so much. (laughs) And so here uh, we read another scripture, and it's Hebrews 9.12 out of the New King James. It says, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all. I love that part. Once for all. All. All who would ever be all. Having obtained an eternal redemption. This is an eternal redemption. There's not an expiration date. There's not a qualification except faith. And it's an eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled with the unclean sanctifies the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Oh, wow. Cleanse our conscience, our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Not only did he cleanse my life and took away the sin, it goes deeper. It does what the blood of bulls and goats couldn't do. You know, they were external. They made it so they could go one year and one year and one year only. But now, he says, the blood of Jesus is so much more powerful It cleanses our conscience. It goes beyond the surface. It goes to the very heart and the inside of us. It goes to our thoughts. And it cleanses our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Well, what kind of dead works? Well, there is sin, dead works. But he's talking about our dead works. (laughs) Our works cleanses us from dead works to serve the living God. Because you know when you have a conscience that is replaying things that are not godly, it will affect how you serve God. So it says he cleanses our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So what is our conscience? What is our conscience? You know, a lot of us know and and realize our conscience as that part on the inside of us that talks to us about right and wrong, talks to us about good things that we're doing, and also, you know, checks us if we're doing something that maybe we're not supposed to do. And that's really good if your conscience has been trained by the word of God. We can live by our conscience. But we have grown up, so many of us, in the world. And we've been told things and we've received things. And there's a lot of thoughts that go on in our head. And they might be from us. Some might be from God. Some might be from the word of God. Some might be from the devil himself. And so we take those thoughts. And in our conscience where nobody sees and knows what's going on, 
we tend to go over those thoughts. And sometimes strongholds are built in our life because we think those thoughts, and we think those thoughts, and we think those thoughts. And if it's a thought like, I'm really great, and I'm powerful, and I'm wonderful, and I'm brave, then that's really good. But that can lead to pride, right? So our conscience needs to be cleansed. But if the thoughts that replay in our mind over and over are, you're no good, you could never do it, you're, you're not worthy, then our conscience needs to be cleansed too. But this tells us that that blood cleansed our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So let's talk a little bit about our conscience. Now, in Revelation 12.10, there's a scripture, and it reads this way. I'm going to read it out of the New King James Version. First, I'm going to take a drink of water. <laughs> It says, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accuses them before our God day and night has been cast down. That's a great scripture. <laughs> And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives unto death. So he says here some things about the enemy. You know this is talking about Satan. It's about him, and it says, the accuser of the brethren who accused them before our God day and night. You know, the devil is the accuser of the brethren. And when he tells us this, he's calling out some of the strategies that the enemy uses against us. And he's letting us know that you need to be aware that there is an accuser out there. And he's an accuser of the brethren. That means those who are washed in the blood, those who are saved, those who are his, God's. He's an accuser. Not only does it tell us that, it tells us he's the father of lies. It tells us that his job is to steal, kill, and destroy. And this reveals to us that the accuser of the brethren is accusing day and night. He doesn't take a day off, and he doesn't take an hour off. He's working all the time to accuse the brethren. So it's important that we recognize the strategy of his work. See, the devil wants you to look at you, and he doesn't want you to look at you and who you are in Christ. He wants you to look at you and who you used to be. He wants you to look at you in all of your faults and failures and flaws and all of those, what we read, shortcomings. He wants us to focus on that. Because if he can make us self-conscious, then we can't be God-conscious. If he can make us sin conscious, then we'll never be righteousness conscious. And we need to have our conscience cleansed by the blood. We need to have that. Why? So that we can serve God. So we can serve him with our life. So condemnation and sin consciousness is a real strategy of the enemy. And I can't tell you in our years of pastoring how many people are completely plagued and stopped in the plan of God because of this very thing. God 
has made a way for us, though, and it's called the blood of Jesus. And the same blood that we applied to our heart and received and we know we're going to heaven is what cleanses our conscience. It cleanses our conscience. And evidently, the enemy has some success in this because he continues this strategy on person after person after person. But we have to understand and know that the power that is in the blood of Jesus is greater than any sin ever. And it's, and it's not just the Adam sin, it's the my sin, right? So the blood of Jesus cleanses us. And he gave us a way in his word to know how to begin the process of cleansing our conscience. So go with me over to 1 John 1.9. 1 John 1.9. See, the enemy points to what we're not, to what we've done wrong, to try and draw us out of our sense of righteousness into that sin consciousness. And if we receive that, he will run us around with our own thoughts He'll run us around with our faults. He'll run us around with our failures. He'll run us around with every time we've missed it, with every weakness that we have. Do we have those? Oh, absolutely. Everyone does. But here's the answer for it right here. 1 John 1.9 out of the Amplified. It says, if we freely admit that we have sinned and confess our sins, he is faithful and just, true to his own nature and promises and will forgive our sins, dismiss our lawlessness, and continuously cleanse us from all unrighteousness, everything not in conformity to his will and purpose in thought and action. I tell you, this covers it. He says he will restore us to purpose. How? By cleansing our conscience. He will restore our thoughts. How? By cleansing our conscience. He'll restore us in our actions. How? By cleansing our conscience. And what do we have to do? We have to freely come and confess. Freely come into his presence. And if we've done that, the Bible says he's faithful. Well, do you believe he's faithful? <laughs> he is faithful. He's the faithful God. And he's faithful to do what? to forgive. He's faithful to forgive. But so many Christians hold things against themselves that God has already forgiven. And Pastor Mark was talking about that last week. We hold things, and therefore we hold ourselves in that place when God has already forgiven. Whose sins you retain, they will be retained. Oh man, we don't want to be in that place. So if we're cleansed from unrighteousness, let me ask you a question. What does that make us? Righteous. If we've come and we've confessed our sin, we're righteous. So does the enemy have any place to hold it over us? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Well, then we go on in 1 John 3, 21. There is a process, and I, and I like in 1 John 1, 9, too, he says that 
he will continuously cleanse us. You know, that means that we need to continuously come whenever we have missed it and come into his presence and go through this process. But if we do that and we don't stay in that place of of staying away from him because sin consciousness will not make us run to him, it'll make us try and stay away. If we run to him and confess, then we are righteous. And 1 John 3.21 says this, And beloved... If our consciences, our hearts do not accuse us, he's saying if you know, I mean, if you know you did something wrong, your heart is accusing you. But if you know that you've come into his presence and you've made confession and your heart is no longer accusing you, he says, uh, if they do not make us feel guilty and condemn us, we have confidence. Why does the devil want you to be aware of all of your flaws? So that you lose your confidence. Complete assurance and boldness. Oh, he doesn't want you bold. (laughs) He doesn't want you saying, oh, God forgave me. And you know what? He'll forgive you too. God doesn't, or the devil doesn't want us bold. He says, we have confidence, complete assurance and boldness before God. And we receive from him whatever we ask. Why? Because faith receives what faith asks for. But we can't have faith when we're in that place of doubting if we're even righteous. And then he says, because we watchfully obey his orders, because we observe his suggestions and injunctions and follow his plan for us and habitually practice what is pleasing to him. We can live in the place of being continually pleasing to him. And Jesus did that. It's a place called faith. Faith pleases God. So then it says, and this is his order or commandment or injunction that we should believe and put faith and trust and adhere to and rely on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and that we should love one another just as he commanded us. Wow. So self-condemnation affects our faith. It affects our boldness. It affects our confidence. It affects our desire to come into the presence of God. It makes us stand far off from God, and it makes us a spectator of what God is doing for somebody else that we don't think he could do for us because we're so stuck in our self-thoughts. Oh, my gosh. No wonder the devil loves it (laughs) because it puts us out of the plan of God, and it puts him right in control of everything. If he can just plant the thought and he can put it there, he can hold us down and he can hold us back. If we, though, will keep the door of condemnation closed and when we miss it, if we'll come directly to God's presence and we'll stand before him and say, Lord, I know I don't do everything perfect, but I thank you for that blood. I thank you for the blood that cleanses me, that washes me. I thank you for the blood that makes me right then guess what? The enemy, his plan and his strategy is stopped. And he can't continue in it. And then we know who we are. But it takes faith to do that. It takes faith to come into his presence and to say, Lord, I believe that that past can't hold me back. That I can move past my past into my future. It takes faith. In fact, it's one of the greatest acts of faith to let our own faults go that we will experience. Here's a great example in the Word of God, and it's 2 Timothy 1.4. It's the Apostle Paul. 2 Timothy 
It says, Paul, an apostle, special messenger of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, favor, spiritual blessing, mercy, and heart peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I worship with a pure conscience. I love that statement. In the spirit of my fathers, when without ceasing I remember you day and night in my prayers. And when as I recall your tears, I yearn to see you that I may be filled with joy. What a beautiful love letter from the heart of Paul to Timothy, his son in the faith. And he says here this wonderful phrase, he says, whom I worship, God, whom I thank God, whom I worship with a pure conscience. Now, wait a minute, Paul, do you remember that Paul was Saul? Paul was Saul of Tarsus. Saul, who went around killing Christians. <laughs> Saul, who was actually present at the stoning of Stephen, holding the coats of all of the people and cheering on what was going on that day. Paul was Saul who had a letter in his hand to kill Christians when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. That was Saul. But he had a transformation. He had something happen in his life. He had the blood of Jesus revealed to him that was shed for him and for all of us. And if Paul could say, I serve God with, and worship him with a pure conscience, then, oh my goodness, we could say that too. <laughs> we could say there's nothing that's stopping me from serving God because the same blood that cleansed him and washed his conscience is the one that washes ours. The enemy would try and make us think that God couldn't use us for anything, but do you think if God could use Paul, that God could use you? <laughs> I do. I think he could. And here's a key that he shares with us in the book of Philippians. Philippians 3.12 says this, Not that I have now attained this ideal or have already been made perfect, but I press on to lay hold of to grasp and to make my own that for which Christ Jesus, the Messiah, has laid hold of me and made me his own. I do not consider, brethren, that I have captured and made it my own yet, but one thing I do, it is my one aspiration, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Wow. That's a key. <laughs> That's a key right there. How did he write so much of the New Testament for us? How was he led by the Holy Spirit? How did he see signs, wonders, and miracles? After what he had done in his life, he received the blood of Jesus, and he knew the power of it. There's power in the blood of Jesus. And when he received it, he let it touch every single part of him inside and out. It cleansed his conscience from dead works that the enemy would try and replay and say, you can't be used of God. Do you know what you did? And he said, nope, that's not me anymore. I am a new man, and I serve God with my whole heart. I forget what was behind, and I press forward to what lies ahead. 
It goes on in verse 14 and it says, I press on toward the goal to win the supreme and heavenly prize to which God in Christ Jesus is calling us upward. So let those of us who are spiritually mature and full grown have this mind and hold these convictions. And if in any respect you have a different attitude of mind, God will make it clear to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have already attained and walk and order our lives by that. And then he tells us this, Brethren, together follow my example and observe those who's, who live a pattern of what we have set for you. Don't you love that? So good, so good. He put everything behind him and he lived by faith in the blood. Faith in the blood. Man, sometimes it's just so easy to jump on board with the thoughts of the devil and accept those. But we have been called to something higher, and that is to live with a clean conscience because of the blood of Jesus. Amen. So, you know, this is one area, and I can say um, that the enemy, you know, he finds what is going to... It's not like he just pulls things out of the air. He knows how to attack you with you. <laughs> he knows what's going to get you, what's going to get you down, what's going to start you onto that path of depression. He knows all of the things that he has to say to you to get you to stop being who you are and doing what you're called to do. And you know, Jesus came so that he could restore us so that we could partner together again. And we partner with him. And when the devil gets you down, it doesn't just get you down. It affects what God can do with you. And so it's really important. And so I'll share with you just something about myself. <laughs> Seems to be that's the way that God works with me. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, I have a story about this kind of thing. So Pastor Mark and I went to this conference, and um, we were invited to go uh, by John and Lisa, and it was really fun, and it was a very, uh, it was an honor to be able to go. But God was taking us to new places. See, when you go somewhere and you're really expecting God to do something and to minister to you, you're expecting him to take you further. Well, we were expecting that, and so we went to this conference, and it was called a Legacy Conference. And so as we went, they were talking about, you know, building a legacy and the church and, and how, you know, the things that we're called to do. And it was just so inspiring and it was so good. And then Mark and I went to tacos for dinner and we started talking about some things. And I don't know, somehow our conversation got off onto me and him instead of what God was doing. And it started going down a bad road and I got mad at him. And not only did I get mad at him, I said some stuff that I really shouldn't have said. Not in that atmosphere, not in that setting, probably not ever. And so, <laughs> you know, and so then he said some stuff to me. And then I was like, oh, I mean, oh my gosh, you know. So we were kind of having this argument. Well, he doesn't even remember this, but it's like ingrained in my head, you know. I could go back there right now. I know when I got mad. I know when I said the thing I shouldn't have said. I know all of the things. So we go back to our room, and I didn't really talk to him. And we get up the next morning, and it has just been like going over in me. I'm replaying everything he said, everything I said. 
But now I'm not just mad at him. I'm mad at me. I'm mad at me. Why did I do that? Why did I go down that road? Why did I? And, and we were supposed to be getting good things here. And we were supposed to be growing. And now we're not growing. And now, we're, now nothing good is happening. And not only is nothing good happening, I'm not good. You know? <laughs> and the devil is just taking this. And he's running with it. And so he's telling me, you, you have failed again. You think you would learn by now, but you do the same things. You're always the same. You never change. You'll never be able to be used by God. People don't like you, and they never have. Remember Debbie Turkle in fifth grade? She told you she didn't like you, and nobody liked you. And it's true. And, I mean, the devil starts using us. Remember? He tells me, remember that party you had, and nobody came to your party. That's because nobody likes you. Well, he doesn't remember or he doesn't bring back the fact that that was the biggest snowstorm we'd had all year, right? right? So nobody came to your party and you went in the bedroom and you cried. And, you know, and he's telling you all of these things. Nobody likes you. They'll never like you. There's something wrong with you. It's always been wrong with you. And I've just got this going and, and there's just no way I'm going to get out of it. And then, so I'm sitting in the meeting. We are still going to the meetings. <laughs> and uh, the usher seats us into an aisle. And so I'm in my aisle, and I'm like, good. There's a chair next to me. I don't want to sit by anybody. I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't want to be around anybody. I'm not good for that right now. <laughs> so, so I put my coat and my purse in the chair, and I'm like, ugh. And then... The usher at the end of the aisle is like this, like, is that a seat next to you? And I'm just like, oh, God, can't just people just leave me alone? And so I raise my hands, and I'm like ignoring him, looking the other way. Like, I'm worshiping. Don't bother me. <laughs> so the usher says, I think that seat's available. Go, go sit there to this guy. And I'm just like, I don't want to see him. I don't want to talk to him. Because as soon as he comes into the aisle, hi. I'm like, hi. He <laughs> goes, I'm Cliff. What's your name? I'm like, Tasha. And he goes, is that your husband? I'm like, yes. <laughs> What's his name? Mark. And I'm just like, oh my god, this is going to be like this? So, totally, I'm trying to get away from Cliff. But Cliff writes me a note. And he gives it to me before I leave the, the, the row that after not talking to him the rest of the time, he says, I have something for you. And I just went, oh. I put the note in my bag, and I just went out to the car. So then Mark's like, where are you? I'm going to find you. So... <laughs> I get in the car and I go, oh, that weird guy next to me wrote me a note. <laughs> he goes, well, what does it say? This is what it says. Mark and Tasha, my name is Cliff. See, the Lord is thinking, if you won't listen to me, if you won't listen and let me tell you that you're not all of those bad things, I'm going to have to recruit someone else. Mark and Tasha, my name is Cliff, and I've been praying for you since I was seated. Please permit me to share a few words 
I believe God has laid on my heart for you. It is not an accident that God has brought you to this conference. Life is tough on Christians, especially Christian marriages. You are here together, and God is here for you. (laughs) You have a wonderful opportunity to pour into the lives of other couples. You have great strength of character. I swear I don't know how he knew that. (laughs) You are givers of life. When you give life, you receive more life, and God keeps filling your cup to overflowing. The more you give, the more you receive. Give, and it shall be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, shall men give into your bosom. Live life to the fullest. Don't hold back. You have so much to give. Your legacy is found in giving yourselves to others. You're blessed, and you're a blessing. You are created for greatness. Study Romans 8. It begins with no condemnation, and it ends with no separation. Have a great life and live it to the fullest. I thank God for Cliff. I thank God for him. I thank God that he was in my path that day, that when the devil was saying, you're nothing, no one likes you, give it up, you'll never be what God wants you to be because you could never attain that, that Cliff was right there, and he said, you know what? There's greatness in you. There's greatness in you. And he, and he ends his, his letter to me by study Romans 8. So that's exactly where we're going. On Cliff's advice, let's go over to Romans 8.1. <laughs> it says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. There is therefore now no condemnation. You know, when we mess up, we go into the presence of God and we do exactly what 1 John 1, 9 says. We go into his presence and we say, thank you, Lord, that you are faithful and just to forgive me when I confess my sin before you. And what does it say in Romans 8, 1? There is now, therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation. No condemnation. Arthur S. Way in his writings about Romans says it this way. He says, No sentence of condemnation, therefore, can lie against those whose life is in union with Jesus. Don't you love that? It is a lie. And the devil's so good at lying, but he takes things that are very familiar, right? Things that maybe somebody else said or that you're dealing with, and he brings it and he bombards you with those thoughts. But they're lies because that's not who you are in him. J.B. Phillips' New Testament in Modern English says this, No condemnation now hangs over the head of those who are in Christ Jesus. Johnson Ben Campbell paraphrase says this, There is no accusing voice nagging those who are united to Christ Jesus. Oh, man. And isn't that the way it is? He's such a nag, that devil. He's such a nag. He just continues Uh, Day and night, Revelation says. Day and night. But there's no nagging voice over those who are united to Christ. And then there's Romans 8.30. And it reads this way. It says, And those whom he thus foreordained, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. 
acquitted, made righteous, putting them into right standing with himself. And those whom he justified, he also glorified, raising them to a heavenly dignity, condition, or state of being. See, he called you, he justified you with his blood, justified, you could say it this way, it is just as if I'd never done whatever it was. He justified us, and he put us in right standing with himself. Oh, man. Frank Laubach says of this verse, he gave his own glory to those whose charges he cleared. His own glory is upon you. And then there's Romans 8.33. And it says this, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? (laughs) Who? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? Oh, we know the answer to that. Who is he who condemns? The accuser. Yeah, that's exactly right. It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us? I'll tell you, not only did he die for you, he's continually making intercession for you. Continually. It's always before. The blood is always before the throne concerning you. Oh, man. So no longer do we have to live under the penalty of our past. And S.C. Carpenter's paraphrase of this verse, Romans 8.33, reads this way. It says, let the accuser launch his charges. They will fall harmless to the ground. The judge of all the world has set our feet upon the way of righteousness. There is no other court that can reverse that verdict. Christ is now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. It is his voice which says all the time, Father, remember those for whom I died. That previous death, that mighty resurrection, that glorious ascension, that good shepherd pleading at the right hand of God, that marvelous series of creative acts has forged a union that cannot be broken. Don't you love that? It cannot be broken. But whoever's sins are retained, they will be retained. So are we willing to let it go? Jesus did everything he could do. Everything. He was made the just and the justifier for us. He has done everything. Will we receive it? You know, self-condemnation, there's a false humility with it that says, oh man, I, I, I just missed it. I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy. And, and it almost sounds like, oh, you know, I'm just so humble. I just can't really attain a place. But actually, the most humble thing is to receive what Jesus did for us. That's humility, true humility. Because we're saying, that's right, I could never do it. So I thank you that you did. I thank you, Jesus, for the sacrifice. And I'll not let that blood be in vain. I'll let it be for me. I'll take that. I'll receive that. Yes, I'll take that place that you made for me in your glory. I'll take a step forward and I'll receive a partnership with you so that I can let people know what you've done for me, you'll do for them. See, when we stay in that place of self-condemnation, we don't, 
help anybody else. Nobody. And the enemy wins. But when we give it up, when we receive the blood, oh man, that's when God can move. And then go with me over to Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43, starting in verse 19. We'll read a couple of these verses here. This is how we have to think about our situation. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. See, there is now no condemnation, but now God is doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not receive and uh, perceive and know it? And will you not give heed to it? That's a good question. Will we give heed to the new thing that God is doing? He says, I will even make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Oh, wow. In verse 25, it says this, I, even I, am he who blots out and cancels your transgressions. And you know, this is the Old Testament. This is the Old Covenant. Every year, their sins were blotted out. But under the New Covenant, what did it tell us? It's an everlasting everlasting sacrifice. So, not only is it blotted out, it's completely cleansed. He says, I, even I, am he who blots out and cancels your transgression for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. You know, as I was thinking about that, it just took me back. See, God said, The sin affected him. It broke his heart because the object of his love was separated from him. He says, I did it, and I did it for my own sake. (laughs) And I will not remember your sins. Why should we remember and let something hold us back that the blood of Jesus cleansed? Put faith in the blood of Jesus. And then he says this, put me in remembrance, remind me of your merits, let us plead and argue together, set forth your case that you may be justified and proved right. When we come into his presence, we say, thank you for the blood. Thank you for the blood. I plead the blood and I argue the blood over my life. I thank you that the blood washes me and it makes me righteous. And I'm just going to drop this at your feet, Jesus. You know what to do with it and I don't. I'm going to put it here and I'm going to not remember it anymore. And God goes, me either. I'm going to take that and put it away. I don't remember that anymore and I don't want you to. You know, when we remember and remember and remember all the things we have done wrong, we hold ourselves in a place. When the devil comes to remind you of your past, we need to remind him of the blood. We need to remind him of the blood. And you know, the devil doesn't like it. He doesn't like hearing about the blood because his mistakes are eternal mistakes. There will never be blood shed for him. He will never regain a place. There's no redemption for the devil. There's only redemption for you. 
That's why he hates you so bad. <laughs> That's why he wants you in the same place of remembering and remembering and remembering. And here's another thing about the devil. You know, he was a worship leader. He was worshiping the Most High God, and yet he was really worshiping himself. He was loving himself and his gifts, but when we worship the Lord with our life, it comes before him as a sweet fragrance and a sacrifice before God that is pleasing in his sight, that is pleasing, that creates an atmosphere of worship, and God loves our worship. And so we took his place. <laughs> Not only is there no redemption for him, you took his place. So if he can keep you out of living in the fullness of the sacrifice of Jesus, oh, he'll do it every day of the week. But we have a clean conscience by the blood of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Well, why don't you stand with me? You know, we have people in the sanctuary and online with us, and I just want to say if this is one of the first times that you're really hearing this, this is your opportunity to get rid of those things that would hold you back. This is your opportunity to put them under the blood, to put the blood of Jesus first, and to say, Lord, I receive that blood. I receive the sacrifice, and I receive Jesus as my Lord. No longer will I be Lord telling whether my life is good or not good. No, I'm going to receive the sacrifice that Jesus made for me so I can live in the fullness of it. You know, it starts with a prayer of dedicating our heart and life to him, and if we've done that before, I just encourage you, keep, keep coming before him and consecrating those things that come up daily. Keep doing it. Keep putting our life under the blood. But let's pray together. If by chance there's one who has not yet prayed this prayer, this is your opportunity. To go from being the victim to the victorious. <laughs> Amen. Say, Father, I thank you for the blood of Jesus that cleanses me from all my sin, from all my past, from every mistake, from every place that I have failed. I thank you that Jesus' blood covers it. And I thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice that reconciles and restores my life. I believe with my heart and I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord of my life. And I ask you to be my Lord today. Lead me in truth. Speak to my heart and show me your plan for my life. In Jesus' name, amen. God's good, isn't he? You know, it's good to continually lay our heart before him and ask him to work in our life. We need that. Amen. Well, tonight we have Reverend Max Dom with us. Make sure that you uh, are here and invite somebody to come. He's going to share with us what God's doing in the world. Uh, I was talking to him on the phone last night. He's super excited to come. He said, I have a word for the church. 
that is, is so powerful. And so I encourage you to come tonight and uh, be uh, participating in that. We were able to sew into the school there in Romania because they received a lot of the Ukrainian refugees. And um, he's, I'm sure, going to share some of those things that happened as well. So it'll be good tonight. Make sure you come back tonight, 6 o'clock. Amen. Have a great day. Let's say this as we go. <laughs> Thank you, Donna. Uh, what God did in Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus. Far, exceeds far exceeds any damage done to me, damage done to me. By, Adam's fall. by Adam's fall. Amen. It's the truth.